2: The Telegraph.
0: Telegraph.
2: Podcasts.
1: The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist fund managers.
3: Hello podcast fans and welcome. The total Football. It's Ian Irving keeping the host seat warm this week whilst Tom Gibbs is riding the managerial merry-go-round. Coming up we'll be discussing the latest twists and turns in the Premier League season as it becomes all Game of Thrones with Vincent Company exclaiming that winter is here. We ask if the red side of Manchester are actually all they're cracked up to be, whether Arsenal have found their cojones again and if Alan Pardew should really shave. We speak with our man in Liverpool, Chris Bascombe, to discuss if Everton might find a new manager before the decade is out and if the current crop can claim the title of the worst Everton team ever. Plus, we'll be speaking to Stonewall's Robbie DeSantos to find out all about the Rainbow Laces campaign that you won't have failed to miss. But first, I'm joined in the studio by Telegraph columnist Jim White. Jim, how are you?
1: I'm all right, Ian.
3: Yeah, you're all Good at to Ol- see you. Thank you. Good to see you, too. Uh, you're at Old Trafford, weren't you, seeing Jose Mourinho? and his team yes, did they it, deserve that stroke of luck in the 1-0 win
1: um i've forgotten it was one of those matches that went in one ear and out the other it was a, <laughs> it was a very very dull Uninteresting, uh, uninspiring performance.
3: Wasn't even that good, was it? <laughs>
1: yeah, you're probably <laughs> right. You're probably right. They were very keen afterwards, all the United, Ashley Young and uh, Mourinho himself, they were all very keen to say, oh, that's the sign of a good team, that you can win ugly, you can win bad. That is putting a very nice gloss on things. It was just bad. The, the, the fans were uh, chanting throughout. Eric Cantona's name, because it's the start of the Christmas season, 12 days of Cantona, blah, 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 blah. But also I think there was a kind of longing for just someone who might be able to open up an opposition.
3: Quite interesting that, because Cantona's been quite controversial in his comments this week, saying that he'd prefer Pep Guardiola to be in charge of United and not Jose Mourinho. That's quite cutting that, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, And I think his point is that... Guardiola, I mean, I think one of the things that's really bugging United fans at the moment is that they look over uh, the city at Manchester City and they see a team playing football the way United should play football. And they're jealous. And that is really adding to a kind of slight unease there is about the manner of Jose Mourinho's football. Very interesting. Yesterday, Chris Hewton talking in his after-match press conference, saying, the one thing you've got to really worry about, United, is their size. You know, there were seven or eight really big lads. They brought on Fellaini, they brought on Ibrahimovic, together uh, with Matic, with Pogba, with Lukaku. These huge guys going forward, and you think, hang on, this is Manchester United. This is the team of Ryan Giggs, of George Best, of Paul Scholes. Never mind Eric Cantona.
3: None of them over six foot. (laughs) (laughs) No. Not even close, some of them, actually, in, uh, in that particular list. What about Ashley not so young then? He's a bit of a renaissance man, isn't he, at left back?
1: He's playing really well, actually. Uh, he's been converted there, largely through dint of the people ahead of him. Uh, Luke Shaw's completely disappeared. Daley Blint, well, he's not really a left back either. Mm. And Young's really seized his uh, position there, playing very well. Um, a couple of occasions, he was like the old Ashley Young, you know, tearing down, down the wing and uh, looking, looking very good.
3: He's looking good. Romelu Lukaku, less so. One goal now in 10 games for Manchester United. What's wrong with Rom?
1: The purpose of Romelu Lukaku was to win matches that were being drawn last season. You know, a lot of people complain he's a flat-track bully, but actually that's what United needed. They needed someone to put the ball in the net in a match like Brighton. But, you know, watching him yesterday, it may be a confidence thing, but his touch and his control is very poor. There was one moment in towards the end where he did a, a, a burst down the line and he was going into space and it was a really good opportunity and he just pushed the ball far too far in front of him and the uh, Brighton defender was able to come across and, and get it. And there is a lack of confidence about him. People have said that not having Paul Pogba there may have been a, a, a part of that problem. And now that Pogba's back, maybe there kind of relationship will get the goals back
3: so Manchester United just about holding on to City's coattails it seems like Tottenham have let go because Pochettino says they're out of the title race after drawing odd
1: uh, that uh, that he has already conceded I mean
3: it is 13 opposed, points though isn't it, it is
1: 13 points but you know Spurs are a very good side and you think what is the point of them if it's not to go for the title you know are they really going to win the Champions League I, I'm not sure does the League Cup matter? No, it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. So what is the purpose of them? It's they've got to go for the league. And I think it's a, it's an odd defeatism from uh, Pochettino, who's a manager I very much admire. But I think he might have got that one wrong.
3: He said a few weeks ago as well that Tottenham are not the type of team who should prioritise winning the FA Cup or winning the Carabao Cup. But maybe they should, shouldn't they? Maybe they should be that sort of team. Otherwise, what are they going to win?
1: Well, they're going to win. end up, I mean... You know, one of the things about uh, Arsene Wenger is that he's won a lot more than Maurizio Pochettino has. And however much people think that Spurs are in the ascendance in North London, Wenger still wins silverware. And that's what ultimately counts. Look at Jose Mourinho. 20 trophies in 15 years. Mauricio Pochettino, none in seven.
3: And in terms of building a, a winning Mood and mentality at at, at Tottenham as well. I mean, surely winning anything, whether it is the League Cup or the FA Cup, surely that would help, wouldn't it?
1: Well, it's often the the spark that kicks you on into other things. You know, you win the League Cup. That's definitely what Mourinho did with Chelsea. Won the League Cup first and the title followed. It gives you a kind of belief. It gives you a sense that you're going places. It doesn't always work, obviously, but it is a really good initiative. And he surrendered that.
3: Looking at the game on Saturday, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about a a Wembley hoodoo for Tottenham. Now it's Wembley woe. Uh, They've dropped points to Burnley, to Swansea and West Brom now at home. That is woe, isn't it?
1: It is a bit of woe. Uh, I was surprised at West Brom. I mean, obviously the players felt that they needed to show something, having lost Tony Pulis, show what was going on. And and, and they fought and uh, Spurs should have expected West Brom to come at them. Uh, But West Brom have been very poor until that point and really a team of Tottenham's creativity really should have taken them apart. And I think what the issue is at at Wembley is everyone enjoys their big day out. It's a different place to go. You know, every footballer's ambition is to play at Wembley and they're getting a chance to.
3: Yeah, Solomon Rondon said after scoring that he was proud to be the first Venezuelan to score at Wembley. That just gives you an idea of, of quite how significant it is for these players. In terms of West Brom then, I mean, Gary Megson's been out of management, I think, for five years. But it sounded like he'd been bitten by the bug after the match again. He was sort of talking about leaving behind holidays and golf and coming back to the mud, sweat and tears of the Premier League. Do you see him being a candidate, a realistic candidate? Uh, I'm not sure he is. I think that a club... uh,
1: Obviously, if he's a caretaker and he does very, very well, we saw it with Craig Shakespeare at uh, uh, Leicester last season, he might get a run. Uh, to the end of the season perhaps but I can't see him being a long-term appointment. Well, having said that, is anyone a long-term appointment?
3: Alan Pardew says it's an attractive job which is more than we can perhaps say for his new goatee beard. <laughs> However, would he be an attractive proposition for West Brom?
1: One of the problems that West Brom had was that their fan base was being massively dislocated by Tony Pulis's football. I'd seen them twice this uh, season. I saw them against Manchester City and against Chelsea. And uh, at neither match was the ground full. In fact, there were big spaces. And this is against two of the top teams in the country. So people were just fed up. They were voting with their feet and they weren't going. So I think one of the things, one of the priorities that the chairman has got there is to get someone in who can create sparkling football. And Pardew has got a record doing that. I mean, his problem is he never sustains it. But if you look at what he did at West Ham, what he did at Newcastle, you know, he did create it, it, intriguing, exciting football. It did dip away, but maybe they could give a little bit of energy to West Brom.
3: Manchester City then, <clears throat> they won again against Huddersfield, but they showed maybe a different side of themselves. Vincent Company declared that winter's here, but there was nothing frosty about Manchester City. They were very sharp, weren't they?
1: Uh, well, I uh, went to see uh, City last week at Leicester and I wrote the, uh, inevitably I was going to be proven wrong. I wrote the words that City don't score bad goals. Oh dear. Uh, but they did this. You know, Two it, of them. Was a, it was a really lucky winner. It, it, was a, it was a bounce, bounced off the keeper's leg, bounced onto Sterling's knee, could have gone anywhere, looped into the goal. It was, a, it was lucky. It is the old adage. Win when you're playing badly and City are just really, really good now and they've just got a kind of momentum going. Interestingly, Guardiola was celebrating with far more gusto than he did when they beat Watford 6-0 or when they put seven past Stoke because he realised that was a tough afternoon's work and they came through it.
3: Yeah, Did we learn more about Manchester City and their ability to go through this season? And be unbeaten, perhaps, or at the very least, win the title in that game.
1: Yeah, I think that they've got a problem at centre back with Stones uh, not being there, and with Company not yet being properly fit. It was interesting that Company was brought off because he knows he's got to play Company uh, during the next couple of matches, and he needs him to be there. And I think that's where the test is going to come. Huddersfield were just biting at them constantly, piling in. You know, press, 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 press. When it comes to the derby against Manchester United, I can see Mourinho putting his uh, Jose's Giants in there and putting long balls in and actually really putting a test at the heart of that City defence. And that may be uh, the one flaw in the side because everywhere else they just look magnificent.
3: Yeah, they certainly do. Watford looked magnificent as well, didn't they, on Saturday? A 3-0 victory at St James's Park over Newcastle. And... Marco Silva's just increasingly looking like management gold, isn't he? Marco Silva's uh, reputation just is now heading
1: towards uh, the the very top, isn't it? I mean, Everton want him. Watford, who normally get rid of managers at the drop of a hat, desperate to keep hold of him, saying he's not going anywhere. Why would Uh, he
3: want to leave at the moment, though, when you look how good Watford are?
1: Well, I think Everton are a, are a bigger club, aren't they? Um, but True. Uh, they're, they're, he's beginning to create something there. there's a real it, you know it, it's an interesting model, Watford. It's always been buying in players from all over the place, sort of 45 different languages spoken in the dressing room and all this kind of thing. but he's developed a very coherent pattern there and Richarlson, uh, who's the young Brazilian winger, he's an excellent. Uh, player will hughes who they brought in from um derby, uh, who'd been in the championship for a long time, a bit not too noticed, long yeah, yeah. Not, no, not really noticed. And he's been brought in uh, by silver and finally been given some games and looking very, very good. Um, and they've got a lot of strength in depth. You know, Troy Deeney's not getting a start, uh, he was the talisman. You thought, oh, you've got to have Deeney in there, but he's not playing, so that shows what Silva has done. He's created a whole new cohort of players.
3: Four defeats in a row, though, for Newcastle. It's a problem, isn't it, for Rafa Benitez when there's a takeover looking like it's finally going through?
1: There there is a sort of sense of inertia around Newcastle. We just wait and see, wait and see what's going to happen. Mike Ash is definitely, not that he was ever keen on doing it, definitely not putting his hand in his pocket at the moment. Uh, You know, January will be very interesting. Benitez will be desperately hoping that the new people take over long before January and are in a position to show their ambition and give him some funds because he's going to need them. I mean, Newcastle are not out at the
3: mire by any means. Full-time at Selhurst Park, the song Every Little Thing is Going to Be Alright played out after that 2-1 win over Stoke. Will everything be okay for Crystal Palace, do you think?
1: Well, they've got their they've got their big one, haven't they? The M23 Derby or whatever it is against Brighton. They've already Brighton. been
3: tweeting and building it up. Oh, yeah. Are.
1: I mean, Brighton fans at Old Trafford on... Um, uh, Saturday were chanting Crystal Palace we're coming for you they must have been the first fans ever to acknowledge at Old Trafford that Crystal Palace existed it was a <laughs> fantastic uh, uh, including thing. Crystal Palace including, fans. including yeah. Palace fans um, so it's it's going to be that is going to be a critical uh, game for them I think if Roy Hodgson can get a result at Brighton that is really going to the fans will be right behind him for that you know they'll forgive him anything get a result against Brighton they're going to love him
3: they are still bottom though, Palace. Only three points from safety. So. They're only
1: three points from safety and there are a lot of teams in free fall at the bottom. You know, there are a lot of clubs are having a big problem at the moment. Palace, they've had a couple of wins at home now under uh, Roy Hodgson. are just beginning to look as though that very talented squad that they got are beginning to come together.
3: A late goal won Palace that game but a late goal denied Liverpool a win uh, at the weekend. There was that Cross, come shot, come cross, come shot. William says it was a shot. Was it a shot? No. Move on. Sure? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to give him any credit for that. I think you're probably right, actually. Let's give Mo Salah some credit, though. He's leading the race for the Golden Boot at the moment. He's the first to double figures. Just how good is he?
1: He's fantastic, Salah. He's so quick and he, you know a brilliant eye for goal. And it's remarkable, given where he was when he played for Chelsea. He just looked all at sea. He looked a complete waste of time for Chelsea. And he he had to leave Chelsea, go abroad and come back. And either it's that experience of, I've got to prove that I can do it in the Premier League, or he just really works better with Jurgen Klopp than he did with Jose Mourinho at Chelsea. Because he looks at at the big difference um, for Liverpool. You know, I think they've got so many creative players at Liverpool Coutinho, uh, Mane. But he's the one who's putting all that creativity and giving it a kind of finishing touch.
3: What about the team selection from Conte Fabregas on the bench? Three defensive-ish midfielders in there?
1: Yeah, he obviously realised that Liverpool's strength was in the midfield and the creativity of midfield and he wanted to put a barrier in front of his defence there. Um, I think he probably missed the trick because... A lot of clubs are going to Liverpool and, and and sort of going defensive. I think you should attack them. I, I, you know, listen, that's why I'm not a manager, because I, I'd lose every match. But I'd <laughs> definitely attack Liverpool.
3: On to Everton's eighth defeat in the last 11 games. Just how bad are Everton at the moment? They are really struggling. Really poor. They're slow. Uh, there's no team spirit. Um, their defence
1: is poor. They've got no attack. They're just... a a shambles everywhere Uh, and it's a real issue and they've got a real problem there because whoever takes over, and we don't know when they're going to come, whoever takes over, they've got to sort out a a real problem and they've already spent 140 million quid in the summer. It's not like, oh yeah, in January, we'll give you another 200 million quid. What are they going to do? You know, How are they going to make those changes? They've just got to get some pace in the side I think possibly the best thing to do
3: would be to bring in some of the young players. Certainly looks a big game this week with David Moyes taking West Ham back to Everton. Is that a relegation six-pointer already, already in November?
1: Already. you know Moyes is he's a great organiser, and I think possibly that's what West Ham need, but they're very poor side. Everton are, people are saying the worst ever Everton side. I, I, I would say probably the worst Everton side of the uh, Premier League era. Uh, against a a pretty second rate West Ham side. Oh, that's going to be one to look forward to, isn't it?
3: <laughs> one for the purists. David Moyes sort of praised the fans, didn't he, after that game on Friday night? And they certainly made a racket. Is that the key to turning things around at West Ham, getting those fans back on side? I think so. I think there's a a, a huge problem uh, at West Ham. I mean, I, I thought it was really interesting uh,
1: that um, West Ham have asked uh, not to have home matches. Uh, on Boxing Day, um, because the London Stadium, um, the, the the number of fans arriving at Stratford Station on Boxing Day when Westfield's got its big sales moment is too much for everyone to cope with. And, you know, nothing is going to cheese uh, fans off more than the fact that they are putting second uh,
3: to the sale at Westfield's uh, shopping centre. Yeah, that's not going to help things, is it? What about Claude Puel then? They've beaten Everton in his first game in charge. They've not won since. He's had four matches. Do we know what his Leicester team are going to look like yet? Has he got an identity to that team yet?
1: I thought that uh, I saw Leicester against Manchester City last week. Uh, they were beaten, but they weren't poor at all. And they did have an attacking idea. Uh, I think he's getting more out of Mahrez, uh, than en- than anyone has since uh, the uh, title-winning side. And that might be the fact that he can communicate with him in French, uh, that might be uh, you know, a, a really useful thing. Marez has looked so much more creative and that's helped Jamie Vardy. Jamie Vardy is so quick up front and having Mares to put the ball through for him. I think there is a pattern there. I was against the idea of Claude Puel, but <laughs> I think I'm already being proven wrong.
3: If only the fans at home could see the grimace on your face <laughs> as you said that, Jim. <laughs> Talking of grimacing, Arsenal... They have cojones, after all, don't they? That 1-0 win at Burnley. They certainly showed it in that, waiting so long to get that victory and showing real character, didn't they? Bellurins wasted no time in tweeting about the team having cojones.
1: Yes, and uh, Mustafi was at it uh, midweek saying, uh, you know, uh, everyone's saying we haven't got any character. Old Troy Deeney has definitely given them got a lift, them. hasn't he? Yeah, he yeah, has yeah. given them a real lift. His son will they be happy. Are, they, are trying, <laughs> they are trying to prove everything he said was wrong and actually, we all know that a lot of what Troy Deeney said had merit. And I think it was interesting that it took an outside player for them to really start to appreciate quite what was going wrong at that club. It wasn't the manager who did it. It wasn't the, uh, the fans moaning and complaining all the time. It was an outside player, you know, one of their peers saying to them, you guys haven't got any character has really sparked a revival at Arsenal. And uh, I think, um, you know, when it comes to player of the season at uh, the
3: Emirates, I think Troy Deeney's in with a chance, hasn't he? <laughs> a lot of talking points across the Premier League weekend, none of them in the 0-0 draw between Swansea and Bournemouth. Is there anything you'd like to bring up, Jim?
1: <laughs> Swansea, uh, you know, the way that modern Premier League football operates, there's always a crisis team. You know, there has it, to be, it, yeah. There has to be a crisis team. There has to be a, a team. And and I heard a remarkable uh, um, analysis about uh, Swansea. They're the only team who haven't sacked their manager in the bottom five this season. Patience so is, a Paul, virtue. is Paul Clement going to survive? Would it be better if they got rid of him now? Um, I'm not sure. He Some of his signings over the summer, you know, that um, Sanchez and uh, uh, Tammy Abraham, they haven't quite fitted in as well as they might have done. Uh, Real Bonny's not really come back. Um, they're, they're, they're definitely missing Sigurdsson. Uh, I think they're struggling at Swansea. And what a catastrophe it would be for that club if they went down, having been in the Premier League for
3: seven years. They need Lionel Messi, don't they? Essentially, yeah. Swansea. Yeah. They need Leon He's Messi. coming out, I think, isn't he? And, they, and they're going to spend 700 million euros <laughs> buying out his contract from Barcelona, aren't
1: they? <laughs> it's, it's the only way. It's the only way. If Messi is worth 700 million, I wonder what Eden Hazard is worth. Or what you're worth, Jim. Yeah, 20p.
3: Is that all? Yeah, if I'm lucky. I want change from 20p, please.
1: <laughs> the Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help
2: you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall
3: as well as rise. Over to Merseyside now where it's a tale of two cities in one city. Liverpool have high-flying Mo Salah scoring for fun whilst the Toffees are on the hunt for someone who can navigate their way to a net for a defender or four and someone to tell them what to do. Liverpool's finest Chris Bascombe, joins us now. So Chris, let's cut to the chase. Will Everton ever appoint a new manager?
2: Maybe sometime during the next century, you know, it will happen, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's getting to that stage now where I sort of made a reference in the Sunday Telegraph this morning, and if you don't mention the word shambolic whenever you write about an Everton managerial search, you just lose all credibility, don't you? I mean, I think I think there's some good intentions going on, I think a lot of what's being been said about Mishiri is a bit harsh, however... His judgment is seriously flawed, and now we're entering the stage of just pure, you know, it's just, you know, do it, comedy, it's not it, a laugh and meta with the Evertonians at the moment, it, but it, it's just farcical that it's just going so bad. You know, you, 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 Ronald Koeman gets sacked, and everyone's saying he's got, you know, he's got to get rid. And what, what are they doing? I mean, they're just sort of just heading towards the championship if they're not careful, and they uh, you know, another really low, low day for Everton, um, you know, when you think about how high expectations were not so long ago.
3: So, I mean, it sounds a simple question in many ways, but why haven't they appointed someone, Chris?
2: Well, I think if we're going to try and be fair to them for a while, it's, it's obviously who they want to get. That You know, they wanted Marco Silva and, and, you know, not so long ago, if you offer £10 million for a manager, it's game over. You know, you, you make an approach, Marco Silva is appointed very quickly, but, the world has changed, hasn't it? Not just with football. We saw it with, with, with a couple of players last summer where just because you're making ridiculous offers, you don't get them. And now it seems the same with managers. You know, I think Watford played a very savvy game. I think it's very interesting how, how quickly Watford have wanted it known that these offers for their manager were resisted. And it looks very good for Watford. You know, will they go back for silver and get him? And then they can say, look, he was always the first choice, which is very difficult to get him. Now, the problem is when you haven't got silver and you're putting your sort of feelers out for others who might be available, such as Allardyce and Dice. I mean, you can understand why people look at this and go, "They really, have got no idea what they're doing here.
3: The problem is as well, Chris, it just seems like with each result, the job's becoming less and less appealing, isn't it?
2: Well, I think that's something we say, but I think I think Ronald Koeman was on something like £6 million a year. I think that's quite appealing for the managers. Yeah. <laughs> it does, you know, and everybody... Yeah, all these managers—they all fancy themselves to go in there and sort it out. They're probably watching the game and going, you know, just need to sort themselves out defensively and begin from there and then start eking out a few results. And Glidden Park remains one of the most difficult places in the country to go and get a result. It doesn't seem that way, perhaps recently, but it is when when you know that the fans are behind the players and the players are, are giving it all. So it can turn around very quickly. I, I, I do not think it's a team that goes down. In terms of the squad, although you wouldn't be able to say that on the basis of what you've seen in the last few games. But no, I I, I don't buy into the idea that managers are going, oh no, I don't fancy that job. I think there'll be a hell of a lot of managers, even those, dare I say, towards the higher end of the table at the moment. I think you want to talk about their salary during the course of a month and what it will get if they go to Goodison Park and I think they will jump at the chance.
1: Chris, I was listening to uh, the comments that were coming in after uh, the defeat against Southampton and a lot of people were saying that this was the worst Everton side they'd ever seen, uh, really shambolic. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that they are actually the only side who's taken any points off Man City this season. Early on, they looked as though they were going places. What has? Why has it all fallen apart so catastrophically? Because the, the, the recruitment is, was so poor. and the, so, I, I think
2: nobody really believed it would go as badly as it had. But it just shows you what happens if you get one major flaw in your side, which was namely no replacement for Romelu Lukaku. Everything else just falls apart. Now, you know Everton, the first few games, it wasn't fantastic. It, 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 but it wasn't, you know, they it it, it looked quite average. But you know they still had a couple of good results. she's saying including that results at City, and suddenly after a few games, we've got actually they've got absolutely nothing up front, nothing at all. You know, and it's got, it reached the point where Uman Niasa being suspended is seen as a blow. I'm sorry, I mean Uman Niasa <laughs> is a dreadful. I'm sorry. I mean you know I know that he's done okay, but he's not Everton standard. You know he's a, he's a hard will, you know, work and willing player. But when he, he joined the club, you could see straight away. He's not a top caliber striker. And now they're relying on him. The negligence of not replacing Romelu Lukaku was the sackable offence. You know, whether Koeman should pay for that or others should be paying for that, you know, that's something for Everton to decide going forward. But that's where it's all begun. And then once you can't score goals, you know, it becomes chronic, you know, across the rest of the, you know, the talking only they defend now, the midfield's offering nothing, and just every element of that side is struggling. But I still don't believe that they are all garbage players. I think they've got some good players there, and you know, clearly, he needs somebody to go in there and just sort them out.
1: You know, but they didn't—they didn't fill the gap uh, when Lukaku left, and they knew he was going for a long time. They have—they didn't fill the gap when Kooman was going, and they must have known that Kooman was coming to an end. They must have known that that was going on. That really does speak volumes for how poor they are behind the scenes, doesn't it? I didn't get a sense they wanted to sack
2: Kuhlman particularly. You know, there was a few games before he went. You know, I think Macheri came out, didn't he, and, and spoke very highly of Kuhlman again. And I do believe, I you know a lot of people disagree with this and say, look, he had to go. He lost the fans completely. But I still think that the 12 games at the start of the season are an anomaly in Ronald Kuhlman, certainly his Premier League career anyway. Look at what he did at Southampton two years. Look what he did at Everton last year. He, he, he's a good manager. And all the things that make a manager liked when things are going well become the things that they're him with when things are going bad. You know, so he, he, you know, when they're doing well, it's disciplinary and it's great. just what they needed, you know, because Martinez was too friendly with the players. And then when it's going bad, oh, he's too aloof. He, he does not understand the club. He, he's not friendly enough with the players. You know, this is what happens when things go wrong. 12 games, I think, was very premature, personally. But at the same time, the atmosphere got so bad. Within the club and within Goodison Park, they felt they had to do something. But I still think it was an emotional response because the fans were demanding it. Could any manager? People will say, do any better? Well, we're going to have to find out soon because some manager's going to have to go in there and sort it out.
3: This weekend, you won't have failed to notice the world of football adorned in rainbow laces, flags, captains' armbands, and much more. This is all part of StoneWall's Rainbow Laces campaign to make sports everyone's game. Robbie DeSantos is Stonewall's head of campaigns and joins us now to tell us more about the initiative. So Robbie, do tell us more.
0: The campaign's all about getting the world of sport to come together and show that lesbian, gay, bi and trans people are welcome and kind of appreciated as part of the fabric of sport. And the reason that we have to do this campaign is that for for such a long time, lesbian, gay, bi and trans people have been at quite a low profile in sport. There's not been very many high profile people on the pitch, commentating, and even really kind of playing at a grassroots level. And as a result, you know, that that kind of absence and lack of visibility meant that people just didn't see them as part of the community. And that we so we started to see a bit of homophobia just because people simply didn't know that there was lesbian, gay, bi-and trans people there in sport.
3: There has been a lot of rainbows about this weekend. They do they do seem to be more prevalent this season. Do you feel like there's progress being made?
0: I think uh, this year has been a a really, really uh, amazing campaign. It's been so good to see not just football, not just the Premier League, the English Football League, grassroots, um, county FAs, but also rugby union, rugby league, uh, hockey, netball, basketball, all coming out in support this weekend. So I think it felt like a real cultural moment for me. I think just the amount of um, support from right across sport and also from, from players and other personalities has just been really, really heartening.
3: Yeah, Liam Resenia was speaking this week as well about his young daughter identifying as male. Is that an example of the progress that's being made around this sort of debate?
0: I mean, I think it's really, really great that Liam's been talking about the, his son um, and uh, or daughter. And I think it's um, really great to see that support. I, I, up until this point, we hadn't really seen many uh, professional footballers talking about their any family members who are, who are LGBT. And, and you know, statistically, there must be loads of um, professional players who've got LGBT friends and family members. So it's, it's really brilliant that Liam has kind of come forward and is sharing his personal anecdotes. I think that is really, really powerful because it just shows that, you know, that banter in the locker room, that those chants on the terraces, even if there aren't LGBT people on the pitch, there's still plenty of people there to be offended um, by those kind of remarks.
1: Uh, hi, Robbie. It's uh, Jim White here. I just wanted to ask you, I was at Manchester United yesterday and while Chris Houghton was wearing uh, a badge on on his jacket, n- nobody at United had the laces or, or or anything. I noticed one of the linesmen actually had the, the rainbow laces, which was good to see. Um, there is more to be done. How are you going to persuade uh, some of these clubs who aren't getting involved in the initiative to get behind it next time?
0: So I think wearing rainbow laces is just one way of showing support. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why, you know, maybe you're superstitious about your boots. Maybe they even have laces. Maybe the the laces are too thin. I think what, you know, this campaign is just about showing that support for people and whether that's on social media, whether that's, you know, putting your LGBT fans on a pedestal. So I'd actually say that there's been really, really good support from right across Um, football and um, you know what what I'd like to see more of actually in the coming years is more of the footballers themselves talking about it from their own perspectives because they're the role models in the game and they're the ones that that fans look up to and listen to but also kind of fans on the terraces we want to see more of them showing their support and 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 calling out homophobia where they hear it
3: just on the laces as well Robbie Considering there has been a number of players who haven 't worn them this year, are you going to look at new ways of of incorporating the the rainbow into the the kits and and the players' uh, gear on match days
0: definitely and um, there 's always lots of ways that you can kind of show that support so we 're really open minded and it's you know after the campaigns finished we 'll be speaking to our partners at the Premier League english football league and and the other uh, key sporting bodies and just looking at other ways that we can kind of plan for players to show their support but I would just say that what, what happens on the match itself is, is only one part of it. And actually, a lot more people might see a, a social media message that's from the heart than laces that you might only see for a couple of minutes of a game on, on, on the highlights.
3: OK, Robbie, thank you very much for speaking to us. Keep up the good work. Thank you. OK, it's that time of the podcast where we unveil our Hero of the Week. And this time we turn to an unsuspecting Norwich City fan, David Spud Thornhill was watching his side take on Preston North End when suddenly the call came over the Tannoy that one of the assistant referees was injured and they needed a spear of the moment fourth official. Queued to 10 minutes later and David Thornhill was appointed. Despite the added 10 minutes at the end of the match, neither the Canaries nor PE were able to take advantage and grab a winner with the score ending 1 1. So, Jim, we are asking you, what was your favourite moment? when a fan has stole the show? Well, this weekend, again,
1: uh, it was Leeds United uh, were playing and there was a low um, winter sun uh, getting into the goalkeeper's eyes. And bizarrely, I mean, you would have thought, uh, perhaps because he plays with Leeds, he doesn't expect to see any sun. Maybe that was it. But you would expect that was part of the goalkeeper's equipment, like gloves. He'd have a cap in his bag, but he didn't. So he appealed to the Leeds fans behind him and the Leeds fan did have a cap and handed it over And Leeds went on to win. No goals were conceded. I think he won the game for him. And very, very nicely, Vidal, the Leeds goalkeeper, afterwards, not only returned the cap to the fan, but gave him his shirt as well. Very polite of him. Very polite.
3: Time is up on another Total Football, but we'll be back again next week, same time, same place. You request contact with me, just head to at Ian TV on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and raters on iTunes. Our theme tune is by Polvo. Go to mergerecords.com to buy their music. Thanks to Abby Patterson on The Buttons, and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Ta
1: The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in
2: association with Lion Trust. Specialist Fund Managers.
3: If you're enjoying being part of the Telegraph Sport podcasting family, then do make sure to download and listen to Brian Moore's Full Contact. It's the most opinionated rugby podcast as every week, Brian and a host of big names from the world of oval balls analyse the biggest and most controversial moments from the weekend's rugby. Your Tuesday commutes will never be the same again if you like rugby.